0: It was an unusual choice for a last meal. Death Row tradition allows for the condemned prisoner to choose his final meal on Earth before execution. The most commonly requested foods are typically things like burgers and fries, fried chicken, pizza, or steak. Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, famously asked for two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. But in the case of convicted rapist and child murderer Robert Buell, He asked for a single, unpitted olive. Keep in mind, this wasn't a completely unheard of request. There have been a handful of death row prisoners over the years who have done the same thing. There's an old death row legend in which it's believed an olive tree will grow from a condemned man's grave as a sign of peace. On September 24th, 2002, at just after 10 a.m., Prison guards from the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility led the 62-year-old Buell from his cell to the death house. There he was strapped down to a table, and an IV tube was inserted into his arm. For a time, it was nearly silent in the death chamber. Then they lowered a microphone to Buell's mouth and allowed him a moment to speak his final words. The words he spoke were directed towards the parents of 11-year-old Krista Harrison, whom 17 years earlier, Buell had been convicted of raping and murdering. He said, Jerry and Shirley, I didn't kill your daughter. The prosecutors know that, and they left the real killer out there in the streets to kill again and again and again. Claiming innocence is a common refrain for convicted criminals, even when they're guilty of sin and facing execution one thing about Robert Buell, though, is there are some people who believe he may have been telling the truth. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you from my secret podcasting chamber in the sub-basement of a Masonic Lodge, and this is The Conspirators. The 1980s were a dangerous time to be a child in Ohio. On November 3rd, 1981, the body of a 12-year-old girl named Tina Harmon was discovered near an oil field in Bethlehem Township. She was fully dressed and her body had been carefully laid out face up in full view of the road that ran nearby. Whoever had put her there wanted her to be found. She had been raped and strangled. Ligature marks on her wrists and ankles indicated she had been bound. Bruises on her face and arms suggested she'd put up a struggle. Rope burns on her neck indicated that the killer may have attempted to strangle her with the rope first before finishing the job with his hands. Oil workers who had been through the area the day before had not seen her body prior to that morning, which indicated her body had been held elsewhere before the killer dumped her there sometime overnight. Police forensics investigators discovered dog hairs, and a large number of orange polyester trilobal carpet fibers all over her clothing. This would prove vitally important to the case later on. The last time anyone had seen Tina was five days earlier in Creston, Ohio, about 40 miles away from where her body was discovered. On October 29th, her father's girlfriend dropped her off in front of a gas station convenience store with a group of friends. Tina was known to have a bit of a rebellious streak, She liked to smoke cigarettes out by the convenience store with her friends. Several witnesses, including a local detective, recalled seeing Tina throughout the evening. At one point, several witnesses saw her in the company of a strange, unshaven man with long dark hair in his early twenties. Tina and her friends were inside playing video games when the man stood in her way and said something to her no one else could hear. At around 6.30 p.m., Tina and her friends decided to walk to the home of another girl who lived nearby. They talked about possibly spending the night and staying up late playing games. As they walked along Main Street, Tina told the others she wanted to stop and purchase a fudge sickle. She told her friends to go on ahead without her and she'd catch up to them in a bit. But she never did. None of them ever saw Tina again after that. The owner of the convenience store later recalled seeing Tina purchase her ice cream. She didn't recall much else, but she did remember seeing an unshaven white male in his 20s or 30s who trailed after Tina after she left the store. Tina's body was found on November 3rd by a young hunter named Herbert Seifert, who was out tracking a deer along the property near the oil well. As Seifert trudged through a field skirting the property, he came across Tina's badly decomposed remains lying face up in the dirt. In her pockets were $3.25 in cash and a book of matches from the convenience store. Since the oil workers in the area confirmed Tina's body had not been there the night before, police came to believe the killer had kept her body hidden somewhere, perhaps inside a house or the trunk of a car, prior to leaving it there sometime that afternoon. Tina Harmon's murder shocked the entire community of Creston, Ohio. There hadn't been a homicide there in decades, and parents everywhere became instantly fearful for their own children. Police began interviewing witnesses and canvassing known sex offenders who lived in the area. Police were told by several witnesses that a girl resembling Tina Harmon was seen entering a truck near the convenience store. But they were later disappointed when some of these witnesses told them the incident they saw occurred on October 30th, the day after Tina's abduction. Investigators continued to follow up on several other leads, but most of those turned out to be dead ends as well. Every time police interviewed any person of interest, they collected carpet fibers from their homes and vehicles to see if they matched the orange carpet fibers found on Tina's body. But none did. One investigator developed a theory that Tina's father might have been involved in her abduction and murder, but this theory went nowhere, as did other suspicions that fell on Tina's ex-boyfriend. In both instances, police were unable to find any evidence tying them to Tina's murder. Nor could they come up with any possible motive why either of them would have wanted to have murdered her in the first place. Then on November 17, 1981, three weeks after Tina's abduction and murder, a local woman named Mary Bowman and her teenage daughter Lois walked into the Creston police station and provided them with the first big break they'd had in the case. Mary and her daughter told investigators they had been driving on Route 530 on the day of Tina's abduction behind a dirty, beat-up car that was weaving haphazardly between lanes. They said the car was driven by two scruffy-looking men, and inside they could see the two of them struggling with what appeared to be a young girl. It appeared the girl tried repeatedly to get out of the car, but the men restrained her. That was when Mary said she began honking her horn repeatedly to draw attention to what was occurring. As she did so, the girl managed to climb out of the car and make a run for it. The two witnesses said they saw the car make a U-turn and chase after the girl. But the mother and daughter said they didn't see what happened next. Mary was unable to give police a good explanation why they didn't report this incident immediately. But she did say she finally came forward after seeing a report on the news about Tina Harmon's murder and began to think the girl she'd seen resembled Tina. Tina. Mary and her daughter Lois said the girl they'd witnessed had been between 12 and 16 years old. She was wearing a windbreaker and jeans with some sort of loop design on the back pocket. Tina Harmon's body was found clothed in a blue windbreaker and blue jeans with a star on the back pocket. At first, Mary was unable to provide police very many details about the car. It was only after she agreed to undergo hypnosis that she was able to describe it in more detail. Under hypnosis, Mary said the car had been a bluish-green Pontiac or Plymouth. The vehicle had no rear bumper. It had a red stripe running along the side of the car and blue carpet in the back window. She said it appeared the vehicle had a temporary license tag, although she couldn't recall the license numbers. Police began searching the area for a car matching Mary's description. After a few days, they began focusing their investigation on a 26-year-old man named Herman Ray Rucker. Rucker had a criminal record for a number of misdemeanor offenses, including a recent conviction for drunk driving. It was known that Rucker often frequented local truck stops, often in the company of a 19-year-old friend named Ernest Holbrook Jr. It's not entirely clear what led police to initially focus on Rucker and Holbrook. The two men did roughly match the descriptions of the individuals seen by Mary and her daughter, but it should be pointed out that Rucker's car did not. Whereas Mary said she saw a blue Pontiac with a missing rear bumper, Rucker drove a primer red 1972 Chevrolet Nova with a black hood, an intact rear bumper, and no blue carpet inside. Nonetheless, police kept digging into Rucker's background, which eventually led them to interview a witness named Susan Sigler, whose name had been given to them by an anonymous source. Sigler knew Rucker and Holbrook, and she told police that one night, She had been out drinking beer with the two men when they confided in her that they had raped and murdered Tina Harmon. If true, Sigler's story was the major break police needed to solve Tina's murder. Even still, the story Sigler told sounded a little fishy to the investigators. Some of the details Sigler provided didn't match the known facts of the crime based on forensic evidence. In addition, Rucker's employer informed police the man had perfect attendance before and after the time Tina was abducted and murdered. This didn't entirely rule him out as a suspect, but it did complicate matters. But Sigler insisted she was telling the truth. She also said there was another witness present who could corroborate what she had heard. She claimed Ernest Holbrook's cousin, Curtis Maynard, had also been present when the two men began spilling details about Tina Harmon's abduction and murder. Maynard was a 24-year-old man with an IQ of only 71, with a long criminal record of petty theft and burglary. Maynard had recently been released on parole after being convicted of aggravated assault and grand theft auto. Police used this against him by threatening to send him back to prison if he didn't tell them what they wanted to know. Maynard tearfully agreed with Sigler's story of Rucker and Holbrook abducting and murdering Tina Harmon. But at the same time, some of the details the man provided didn't match Sigler's version of events, either. At one point, he even claimed Susan Sigler had been in the car at the time of the abduction. One thing Maynard remained unable to tell investigators was where the men had taken Tina's body. Police became frustrated by Maynard's inconsistent testimony. Then on January 12, 1982, Curtis Maynard was arrested again for stealing $4 from a friend. In an attempt to avoid going back to jail to serve out a four-year prison sentence, Maynard revised his earlier story and told police a version of events that fit the known facts better. He even added the additional detail that Rucker and Holbrook actually showed him Tina Harmon's body. Maynard led police to a small shed near where the Bowmans claimed to have seen a young girl struggling with the two men inside a car. According to Maynard, the shed was a popular hangout location for Rucker and Holbrook. Inside, police found a pile of women's clothing and a bunch of pictures of nude women. They also found an orange carpet, but... Forensics tests were unable to match those carpet fibers with those found all over Tina Harmon's clothing. But despite this, police investigators still decided they had enough evidence to arrest Herman Ray Rucker and Ernest Holbrook Jr. for the abduction, rape, and murder of Tina Harmon. The district attorney announced he would seek the death penalty for both men. Rucker and Holbrook insisted they were innocent. They were tried separately. Herman Ray Rucker was the first to be put on trial even though the case presented by the DA was entirely circumstantial and defense attorneys were able to poke several holes in the stories provided by the witnesses. Rucker was ultimately sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 20 years plus 50 more years in prison for the rape and kidnapping charges. The prosecutors were confident they'd be able to secure a conviction of Ernest Holbrook Jr. using the same evidence and eyewitness testimony. But then, just a month later another very similar abduction and murder occurred, which led police to begin to question if they really had arrested the wrong man. On July 17, 1982, 11-year-old Krista Harrison was abducted from a baseball field near her home. She'd been out collecting cans with a 12-year-old friend named Roy on that rainy afternoon. Roy saw the whole thing. He told police that around 5 p.m. a dark-colored van with dark seats and bubble-shaped windows pulled into the park. A young white male around 25 to 35 years old got out of the van. The stranger was skinny and he had long hair and a mustache. Roy thought he might have looked Italian. The young man approached Krista and sat next to her on the bleachers overlooking the baseball diamond and began speaking to her. Roy couldn't hear what they were saying but at one point the man reached his hand underneath Krista's blouse. When Krista began crying the man whispered something in her ear and the two of them walked over to the man's van and climbed inside. As the van began to pull away, the man leaned out the window and said, Bye, Roy, to the terrified 12-year-old. Then the man put the van in gear and sped away. Other witnesses came forward later saying they too had seen a strange man who matched the description given by Roy. A number of them said they saw this man attending one of Krista's softball games and taking her photo with a 35mm camera. In the weeks leading up to Krista's abduction, several prank phone calls were made to her home. Several other children also came forward who said they saw a dark-haired man talking to Krista in the village snack shop's game room the same day she was abducted. They said the man blocked her path when she tried to get by, and Krista looked afraid. On July 23rd, just under a week after she was abducted, a pair of turtle trappers discovered Krista's dead body in an abandoned shed in Holmes County. Her body was fully clothed and had been wrapped in plastic. Investigators discovered several of the same orange trilobal polyester fibers on Krista's body that had been found on Tina Harmon. There were several other similarities to Tina Harmon's case as well. Like Tina, Krista had been raped and strangled shortly after her abduction. Evidence also indicated both girls had been held in some sort of vehicle for a few days before their bodies were dumped later on. Investigators speculated it was likely a van or the trunk of a car. The following day, a related crime scene was discovered in West Salem. Police found a plastic bag covered in Krista's blood and hair in a weed-covered field alongside the road. The bag contained a piece of Krista's scalp. Next to the bag was a blood-stained blanket and a portion of a large cardboard box. Police also later recovered a dirty pair of girls' jeans and a man's plaid shirt near the area where her body was found. Forensics investigators discovered a fingerprint on the bag and soon were able to determine that the cardboard box had once contained car seats that had been ordered from Sears. Sears was able to provide police with a list of names of individuals who had ordered similar car seats. One of those names in that list was Robert Buell. Police interviewed Buell along with a number of other potential suspects, but at the time, Buell didn't particularly stand out from anyone else they interviewed. Police approached legendary FBI criminal profiler John Douglas, the special agent who inspired the character Jack Crawford in The Silence of the Lambs, to create a profile of the suspect. Douglas's profile said the suspect they were looking for would be a latent homosexual, someone who acted like a macho man on the surface but secretly desired the company of other men. He would work in a menial or unskilled trade and he would secretly harbor deep seated feelings of inadequacy. He would have, at best, a high school education, and he would have a great deal of resentment towards people whom he thought were superior to him. By this time, it had become apparent to police investigators that Herman Ray Rucker and Ernest Holbrook Jr. were unlikely to be Tina Harmon's killers, since it was impossible for the men to have abducted Krista Harrison, as they were both in jail at the time. Then, a few days after Harrison's body was found... Curtis Maynard recanted his confession and now claimed he'd been coerced by police into telling them what they wanted to hear. Rucker's conviction would eventually be overturned, but prosecutors still pushed ahead with their case against Ernest Holbrook Jr. and were able to secure a conviction before a three-judge panel. He was sentenced to life in prison. Maynard would spend the next two years in prison before his conviction was set aside after Robert Buell was arrested for the rape and murder of Krista Harrison. By that point, police had become convinced both Krista Harrison and Tina Harmon's murders had to have been committed by the same person. Then on June 25, 1983, 10-year-old Debbie Smith was abducted from a street corner in Massillon, Ohio. Later that day, Debbie's parents received a frantic phone call from the girl who did not tell them where she was. On August 6, Debbie's body was found along the banks of a river. She had been raped and most likely stabbed. The body was badly decomposed, making some details difficult to determine, although the remains appeared to show signs of blunt force trauma as well. Melted candle wax was found on her body, along with a few unmelted candles nearby. Police had few leads to go on, although it was becoming clear to many investigators they had a serial killer on their hands. Two months later, a Doylestown resident made a strange phone call to the police. The caller told officers a naked woman with a shaved head had just appeared up on her doorstep with a handcuff attached to her wrist. The woman said she had just escaped from being held captive in the house across the street. The owner of that house was Robert Buell. The 28-year-old victim had been abducted from the gas station where she worked on the night of October 16, 1983. She had been painting the office floor when a man burst into the room and forced her into his van at gunpoint. He drove her to his house and forced her to undress. After that, the man handcuffed her to a leather bench and shaved her head. Then he proceeded to rape and torture her repeatedly. But after the man left her alone one day, the woman managed to break free and escape. Immediately after, police arrested Robert Buell and charged him with multiple counts of rape and kidnapping. At the time of his arrest, Buell was a 42-year-old college-educated employee of the city of Akron. He was dating a female attorney and he had a daughter who attended Kent State. People who knew him described him as neat and fastidious. None of this, it should be pointed out, fit the criminal profile provided by John Douglas. But as soon as police realized Buell's name was among those they had previously interviewed in the course of the Krista Harrison investigation, they believed they had their murderer. Police swept Buell's home and discovered a roll of orange carpet inside a guest bedroom along with a large amount of other evidence tying him to the previous abductions. The carpet contained orange fibers that matched those found on both Krista Harrison's and Tina Harmon's bodies. They also found a pair of girls jeans that were the same size and brand as those found near Krista's body. They also found dog hairs that matched canine hairs similar to those found on Kristen's remains as well. There was also a newspaper clipping about the abduction of Debbie Smith along with a bunch of candles of the same brand as those found near Debbie's body. Police also searched Buell's van, a maroon 1978 Dodge that contained new seats ordered from Sears. The van contained more of the same carpeting they had found in Buell's home. One thing the van did not have were the distinctive bubble-shaped windows Krista Harrison's 12-year-old friend Roy said he saw. But later, police learned new information that may have explained this discrepancy as well. Police brought several witnesses in and showed them a lineup of mugshots of potential suspects. Several of the people they showed picked out Buell's photo as a stranger they had seen photographing Krista at her baseball game. Work records from the city of Akron also showed that Buell took off work early on the day Krista's body was dumped. As Buell began appearing in newspapers and on the TV news, so too did a number of other women begin coming forward claiming they had been abducted and raped by a man who looked exactly like him. One discrepancy about all these cases, though, was that all these women were adults in their 20s, not preteen girls. Serial killers tend to choose a particular type for their victims, often a particular age group and overall look. Since they were unable to explain why Buell would target both adult women and young girls, investigators commissioned a second criminal profile that helped explain this away. Buell pled no contest to the rape charges and was given a sentence of 121 years in prison. He was only ever charged with a single murder, that of Krista Harrison. Although police were now convinced he was also responsible for killing Tina Herman and probably Demi Smith as well. On April 4, 1984, Buell was convicted of Krista's murder and sentenced to death. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Now, from everything I've described thus far, you've probably come to the same conclusion that police had the right man. And in the eyes of the law, they did. Keep in mind, there is every indication that Buell was a rapist and very likely a murderer. But was he Krista Harrison's killer? Well, that's where things get a little more complex. For one thing, it should be noted that Robert Buell wasn't living in the house at the time that Krista Harrison was abducted. But he did have a nephew who was. I'll call this man Roger for reasons I'll explain later. Roger was 20 years old at the time of Buell's arrest. He was skinny, had long dark hair that curled at his shoulders, and he was growing a mustache. In February 1982, Roger moved to Akron and got a job driving a truck for an auto parts manufacturer. At that time, Robert Buell had a girlfriend he spent most nights with, which meant his house remained empty. So he allowed his nephew to stay in the guest bedroom inside his house in exchange for him doing minor chores around the place. But Roger and his uncle Robert Buell had something else in common other than blood. They also liked to talk about kidnapping women and assaulting them in Buell's van. Wayne County Sheriff's Detective Dennis Durflinger interviewed Roger shortly after Buell's arrest in 1983. It was during this interview that he told the detectives about how Buell would describe to him in detail how his uncle would often fantasize about abducting and raping young women. He even admitted these conversations weren't quite so one sided and he would often chime in with his own thoughts on how such an abduction should go. It should be known that the van Buell had wasn't the first such vehicle he owned. Before the van he owned at the time of Krista's abduction, Buell had owned a 1977 Dodge van that he sold to his nephew Roger in 1980. A vehicle that Roger was still driving two years later. Although that van was quite similar to the one Buell bought next, it had a notable difference, namely oversized bubble windows. The same sort of windows described by witnesses on the van driven by the stranger who abducted Krista Harrison. It should also be pointed out that although Roger's hair was curly at the ends while Buell's was straight, the two men bore a striking resemblance to one another. In fact, it's been reported that police once mistook Roger for Buell when they came to the house to investigate a noise complaint. One of the witnesses who described the person taking photographs at Krista's baseball game was adamant there were actually two men there that day even though this witness identified Buell from the photo lineup he said he wasn't the man holding the camera the skinny guy with the long dark hair standing next to him was Krista's friend Roy always insisted that Buell wasn't the man he saw abduct Krista although he admitted Buell did bear a striking resemblance to the man who took her Roger didn't have an alibi for the day Krista was abducted either he said he couldn't recall his whereabouts on that particular day This isn't to say he was guilty, though, but it didn't help his case any. Detective Durflinger did note in his interview report that Roger had begun to grow a beard at that time, even though he didn't think it meant anything. When the detective asked Roger to submit his photo and fingerprints, Roger refused. The witness who found the girl's jeans and man's shirt at one of Krista's crime scenes said they saw them there at 11.30 a.m. Police believe those items must have been dumped there sometime that morning because they were not seen before then. The trouble was work records show that Buell was working until noon that day. Buell's girlfriend later claimed he only took the rest of the day off to help her fix her clothes dryer. She even produced a receipt showing she had purchased a dryer belt later that day. In prison, Buell wrote a letter to a reverend in which he described how odd it was his nephew wasn't at work that day. He also mentioned that Roger had injured his hand somehow that same day and had gone to the hospital to get it x-rayed and bandaged. Roger's employer had no record of the injury. Buell's girlfriend also told investigators that the last time she had seen the cardboard boxes, the new van seats came in. They were in the garage next to the garbage cans, and it was Roger's responsibility to carry them out to the curb. A week after Krista's body was found, records show that Roger abruptly quit his job and moved from Akron back to his home in Mingo Junction, where he got a job working in his mother's craft store. Although police found several carpet fibers on the two murder victims' bodies that matched those discovered in Robert Buell's house and van, one thing they never found were any hairs or other DNA from any of the murdered girls inside Buell's home. Forensics are a two-way street. Murder victims typically pick up microscopic materials from the crime scene as well as leave them behind. Police never examined Roger's van. Nor were they ever able to match the mysterious fingerprint found in the green plastic garbage bag to Robert Buell. Investigative journalist James Renner, who has researched the case extensively, wrote that he once interviewed a former acquaintance of Roger named Carl Calvert. Calvert told Renner that one time during the summer of 1982, he recalled speaking to Roger over the phone and hearing what he said sounded like screams in the background. When Calvert asked his friend what all the commotion was about, Roger replied it was just his pet parrot. Buell was convicted of Krista Harrison's murder in 1984. But even after he was behind bars, several other high-profile murders of little girls around the same age as Krista Harrison and Tina Harmon continued across Ohio. In 1989, a 10-year-old girl named Amy Mahalovic was snatched from Bay Village, a town 58 miles away from Krista Harrison's hometown of Marshallville. Amy's body was discovered in February 1990, just a short distance away from the very same location where police found the plastic garbage bag containing the section of Krista's scalp. Whoever murdered Amy had contacted her by phone and arranged to meet her on the pretext of buying a gift for her mother because of a recent promotion. Several other young girls in the area also reported receiving similar phone calls, although none of them fell for the ruse. Like Tina Harmon, Amy Mihaljevic's body was laid out in an open area that would be clearly visible from the main road. Also, the coroner found gold-colored carpet fibers on Amy's body, although these fibers were never compared to those found on the bodies of Krista Harrison and Tina Harmon. And why would they? The man police thought was responsible for those crimes was already behind bars, and therefore couldn't possibly have been involved in Amy's death. Ultimately, it would prove difficult to determine any connection between the abduction and murder of Amy Maholovic and the other dead girls. It was later revealed that the Sheriff's Department destroyed most of the evidence collected from Robert Buell. In December 1995, a 13-year-old girl named Barbara Barnes disappeared on her way to school. Two months later, her body was found strangled to death. In this case, unlike the other girls, the killer actually took steps to hide the body. Her remains were found partially buried in a muddy embankment near Pittsburgh. Barbara's body was only found after the river level rose and washed away enough of the earth to reveal her remains. The prosecutor in Krista Harrison's murder case, Martin France, later admitted that while there was some circumstantial evidence to suspect Roger, He remains confident they executed the right man for the crime. But later on, Sheriff's Detective Durflinger also expressed his belief that Roger may have been involved. A pastor named Ernie Sanders, who had become acquainted with Buell while he was in prison, strongly believed that Roger was the real murderer of Krista and all the other girls. He told James Renner that Buell had warned Roger on multiple occasions not to abduct any little girls, but Roger didn't listen. Buell told Sanders that he thought his nephew set him up to take the fall. Since Roger lived in Buell's house and had access to all Buell's possessions and clothing, as well as other evidence like the cardboard boxes the van seats came in, he was in the perfect position to frame him. James Renner interviewed Roger at his home in September 2007. At the time, he was working as a cable TV installer and was living in a house near Steubenville. He'd also recently been arrested for possession of marijuana. He told Renner he didn't think his uncle committed those murders, but he also didn't have any idea who did. He told Renner he'd regretted telling police about the conversations he'd had with Buell speculating about the ways to abduct women because he knew it made him look bad. He said he was young and didn't know any better at the time. He denied attending Krista Harrison's softball game with Buell, and when Renner pressed him further if he knew anything about the girl's death, Roger slammed the door in his face. In late 2007, the FBI finally compared fibers taken from Tina Harmon's body to those found in the remains of Amy Maholovic, but they weren't a match. At that time, Wayne County Sheriff's detectives stated they were re-examining the investigation into Krista Harrison's murder. But to date, no one else has ever been arrested for the crime. Although James Renner makes a compelling case for Rogers' involvement in the deaths of so many young girls, like Herman Ray Rucker and Ernest Holbrook, all the evidence against him is purely circumstantial. To date, the man has never been arrested for any of those crimes, and officially police have cleared him of wrongdoing. Which is why I've chosen not to use his real name. In the eyes of the law, the murders of Krista Harrison, Tina Harmon, and Debbie Smith were all committed by one man, Robert Buell. Until further evidence is found, we can only speculate whether Buell acted alone or not. It should be noted, though, that apparently Ohio didn't have any shortage of child murderers back in the 1980s. On September 29, 1982, a 7-year-old girl named Dawn Hendershot was snatched on her way to school in her hometown of Massillon, Ohio. In this case, though, there is no doubt who perpetrated the crime. Police arrested a man named Donald Morrer, who gave a full confession. He even led detectives to the girl's body and is currently serving a life sentence in prison. At the time of his arrest, Robert Buell had not yet been identified in the murder of Krista Harrison, so Moorer naturally ended up high on the list of potential suspects in Krista's murder. But while researching the case, James Renner discovered a strange coincidence in Donald Morrer's history. At the time of Dawn's murder, Maurer worked in a Canton, Ohio butcher shop named Salzburg Meats. While employed there, Maurer also worked with a man named Herbert Seifert. If that name sounds familiar... You see, it turns out that Seifert is the very same person who discovered Tina Harmon's body while he was out hunting near his father's home in Bethlehem Township. But was that just a bizarre coincidence? Since Mora knew Seifert, one can only wonder if somehow he also became familiar with Seifert's property. If so, this casts doubt on the entire investigation. It's impossible for Mora to have been responsible for the death of Debbie Smith since he was already in prison by the time she was abducted. But considering the massive amount of evidence that exists tying Krista Harrison to Robert Buell, you can only wonder, then, just how many serial killers were living around the area at the time. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Kristen, Becca, Michaela, Jasmine, George, Robin, Tony, Nick, Aaron, Jeremy, and the rather remarkably named Zath Attack. Thanks to you, all of you for helping support the show. You're all amazing. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. We also have a new merch store where you can get all sorts of cool items like conspirators' t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested in supporting the show, I'll put a link in the show notes to both my Patreon account and the merch store. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's podcast charts and helps spread the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're on most of your favorite podcast apps. We've also just recently been added to Spotify, which is just one more place you can find us. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Find us on social media, too. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. It's lonely out here in the cold, dark podcasting void. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.